Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you will now help us to understand what your word says very clearly so that we can derive the comfort that it has. But please keep us from error as we're thinking about this, uh, this very interesting passage. Uh, please give us wisdom now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a famous story by Charles Dickens. It's called uh, Oliver Twist. It's about a boy by that name, Oliver Twist. And probably the most famous scene in the story happens in an orphanage. So Oliver, his mum died when he was little, his dad wasn't on the scene, and so he's left to an orphanage, and it is, it's terrible, this orphanage. The, um, the, the leaders of it are these tyrants, they're actually exploiting the children, the children are made to do slave labour, and uh, they're given starvation rations. One day the boys, they're desperately hungry, they decide they're going to draw lots, Whoever gets the short straw will have to go and ask for more of this gruel that they're being given. Oliver loses, and so at the next next meal he comes forward, trembling, bowl in hand, and gives that very, very famous line, everyone knows it, please sir, I want some more. Yeah, everyone knows it. When it comes to God, I wonder if sometimes we feel a bit like Oliver. We've got no confidence that God loves us. No confidence that we belong to him. No confidence that he wants the best for us. Sometimes we can feel like he's one of these scary tyrants. And so we make our requests to God a bit like Oliver did with his cruel guardians. Now there's... There's reason why we might feel like this. I mean, God is perfect. We saw it back, uh, back at the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 5. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. God is perfect, pure and holy, and he sets a very high standard for us. He says, uh, John told us, he said, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And of course, none of us live up to God's standard. It was none of us a light. We all sin. We all fall in so many ways. If we genuinely examine our hearts before God, we know we are in trouble. Our hearts, if we're honest, they will condemn us. We're not good enough to be in God's presence. We have no right to ask God for anything at all. We have no reason to expect anything from God except his anger and his judgment. So, is it possible that we could ever have confidence before God? Is it possible that we could ever approach God in any other way than like Oliver Twist, with with guilt and with terror? John reckons we can. John reckons we can come to God as not like a terrible orphan guardian, but as like a father. John reckons we can have a profound confidence before God. And so far in his letter, he's shown us why. And it's all about Jesus. Come back with me to chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. Craig actually quoted this really neatly, I thought, in the the first prayer as we were confessing our sin before God. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13, John says, I write to you, dear children, talking about the church, because you have known, not the tyrannical orphanage ruler, because you have known the Father, God as Father. Yes, says John, we can have confidence. We can be confident in our relationship with God. Why? Because Jesus died for us. He gave his life as an atoning sacrifice. He's done everything that's needed to take all our sin and failure away. In fact, he's done what's needed to take the sins of the whole world away. It is such a magnificent, awesome, amazing sacrifice. And he's not just dead, of course. He's alive again and he's at the right hand of God. And he's speaking to the Father in our defense, pleading the case of his people. Jesus has done what it takes to enable people to be confident before God, to know God not as a terrifying judge, but as a loving Father. But there's still an issue. Because, yes, Jesus died, what does it say, gave his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, but the whole world is not now right with God. It's not like the whole world now belongs to God as his people. The whole world can't come to God with confidence. The whole world can't come to God and call him Father. We know that. We know that we have to do something. We have to respond to God. We have to, what do we have to do? We've got to put our faith in Jesus. Rely on Jesus. As John put it, we have to remain in Jesus. And so again, we're left with a question. All right, so Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but but how do I know that's of any benefit to me? How do I know I'm relying on Jesus? How how do I know his sacrifice is paying for my sins? How do I know I am remaining in Jesus? How do I know that I can have confidence before God because of Jesus? Do do you understand the issue? All right, yeah, great, Jesus died for everyone, for the whole world. How do I know I'm getting any benefit from that? Well, John gives part of the answer to this question in this passage that we're looking at today. Uh, Here in this passage... He gives us a kind of a, a litmus test. You know what a litmus test is? You, you get the paper, you stick it in the liquid. If it turns, is it red, it's an acid. If it turns blue, it's an alkaline, something like that. All right. Here in this passage, he's giving us a kind of a spirit. You were last smiling, but did I get it wrong? Okay, sorry. should never just say science things in front of scientists. Um, okay, Lit, litmus test, all right? Spiritual litmus test. A spiritual litmus test. It's a litmus test to know if we belong to God or not. Okay, it's a litmus test to know if we can come before God with confidence or not. It's not the only test that John gives. There are at least three tests that you'll find in this letter. But this is a crucial one. All right, well, let's have a look at the passage. Let's have a look at the passage. John begins by taking his readers back to the original gospel message, the message that came from Jesus himself, the message that he, John, and the other apostles first preached to uh, first preached to the people uh, that John's writing to, first preached. This is their original message, and he says that the message included a command. A command to love each other. 
1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. Have a look with me. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Christians should love each other. That's basic. Basic Christianity. But what does it mean? What does it mean to love each other? We use this word love in so many different ways, don't we? I mean, I love Tim Tams, but if I have to love you the way I love Tim Tams, you're in deep trouble, believe me. Um, I love my wife. I love my children. I love playing the guitar. I love having a hot bath. But none of these loves are quite the same, are they? Mostly when you hear about love, you hear a a song on the radio about love, it's talking about some kind of romantic or sexy love, something like that, isn't it? I love you and I want to go to bed with you type songs. I take it I'm not supposed to love all Christians like that. Certainly not you blokes anyway. Um, Love is one of the most overused words in our language. We use it in so many different ways. So what's John talking about? What's John talking about when he says, love one another? What is this love? Well, John starts off by saying what it isn't. He says, love does not involve murdering people. Just in case you didn't have that clear. Uh, If you love people, you don't murder them. All right? Verse 12. Verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Uh, John goes on then to talk about what was behind Cain murdering Abel. It's because Abel's righteousness showed him up. It exposed Cain's evil. Verse 12 again. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And this leads John off on a slight tangent. He says, Look, just like Cain hated Abel for being righteous, if you are righteous, if you as a Christian live righteously, you can expect to be hated. You can expect evil people to hate you. If you live righteously, you will show up other people's evil. If you are telling the truth, then you'll expose other people's lies and cover-ups. If you don't swear, then you'll stand out among the people who do swear and suddenly they'll stick out. If you are honest and don't steal, you'll make the people who are stealing look bad. In a world full of Cain's, righteous Abel's will always be persecuted. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Okay, and then John comes back to the point. He expands a little bit more. What is love? What is love? All right, it's, it's not murder. Loving people means you don't murder like Cain, but it's more than that. It means that you don't have the kind of jealousy, hatred that led Cain to murder. We, we've been brought out of that old Cain-like way of living, says John. We've been brought into a new life, into eternal life, and that's got to show itself. It's got to show itself by the fact that we don't live in hatred and malice and bitterness and resentment anymore. We need to love, verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Because that's going back to what Jesus said, wasn't it? That even anger is murder in our hearts. All right, we know what, uh, we know what loving our brothers isn't. It's not murdering them. It's not hating them. So what is it? John tells us that we can know what it is by the example of Jesus. Jesus showed us what it is to love. He showed it by giving his life for us, by dying for us. And why did he do that? He died for us to take our sin away so that we can have life. Jesus gave his life 
for our good, to do good for us. He laid down his life for our good and says, John, that's what we ought to do as well. That's the kind of love we ought to have. We ought to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians, do good to them, even if it means cost to us. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what kind of love is this? This is not, uh, what, what, what kind of love is it that we're supposed to have for our fellow Christians? This is not Tim Tam love, is it? It's not hobby love. It's not uh, romantic love or sexy love. I, I guess the closest parallel would be something like family love. Don't you think this is like the love you have for your children? Or hopefully for your parents or your brother or sister? It's, it's the love of we, we know that we belong to each other and so we will seek each other's good. Even if it costs us, even if it means making sacrifice, we will do good for the other. John goes on to give a practical example. He says, if you see a fellow Christian in need, you ought to have pity and you ought to help. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Answer, it can't. And so John says, he says, this love of Jesus, it wasn't just a matter of talk. He put his life on the line, all right? He loved us in action. Now, just a little bit of a tangent. I'm sure it wasn't just action. You hear people go over, overboard on this and say, love is all about actions. It's not about emotions or feelings. I'm sure Jesus does love us from his heart. I'm sure he feels genuine affection towards us. I don't think he went, I hate them, but I'll just die for them out of emotionless duty, something like that. All right? I think Jesus genuinely loves us from his heart. But the point that John is making is it's not just talk. Okay? It's action. And John goes on to say, that's how we should love as well. We can't kid ourselves. It's got to be a sincere love, a true love, a love that leads to action. Verse 18. Dear children... Let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Friends, it's, it's basic. It's basic Christianity. If you don't get this, you haven't got the first base. Christians need to love each other. That means not hating or murdering each other. It means laying down our lives for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, and it's now at this point that John comes to the issue I was talking about at the start. He says, listen carefully, because it could very easily fall into heresy. All right, he says, as we love our fellow Christians, it acts as evidence to us. It's evidence that we know the love of Jesus. It's evidence that we have come from death to life. It is evidence that we belong to Jesus. If for some reason we are feeling like we're not right with God, if our hearts are condemning us, if we recognise that we're being sinful or whatever, we ought to be able to look at our lives and if we can see love for fellow Christians in our lives, that should give us confidence. It should set our hearts at rest. Yes, I know I'm a Christian. I know. I'm right with God. Verse 19. Have a, have a look at this. See if this is what John's actually saying. This then, how? 
the sort of love, loving not with just words but in actions and in truth. This then, how loving like Jesus loved us, laying down our life for each other, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. If we have genuine love for Christians, it is a sign to us that we have a genuine faith in Jesus. Now, yes, of course we sin. Yes, of course we fail. Yes, of course our hearts will still condemn us. Yes, of course we could always love better. We don't want to rely on our love. We're not saved because of our love. But if we can see a real love for Christians, the kind of love that's not just talk, the kind of love that leads to actions, God says, chill out, relax, you're mine. Do you understand? And of course, this is wonderful because God is greater than our hearts. God knows better than our hearts. God knows better than my current feelings. So even if my heart is condemning me and I'm going, how could I possibly be a Christian? Even if I don't feel like I could be a Christian, I can trust what God says here. He says, look at your life. If you can see evidence of the reality of your faith in your love to other Christians, then chill out, rest assured, you're mine. Back to verse 20. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And John goes on to say that this confidence before God, it should lead to confident prayer. We don't have to come to God like Oliver Twist, feeling like we're going to get a beating. We come to God as a loving father, a father who wants what is best for us. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, and they shouldn't, if we can see genuine love in our lives, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Obviously that anything we ask is not a blanket statement. You can ask for a Porsche, you probably won't get it. Um, like any good father, God is going to give you what is ultimately for your best. It's not necessarily what you want, certainly not what you might want in this life anyway. But the point is we can come with confidence. We can come with fearlessness. We can come with comfort. If, if we can see a genuine love of Christians in our lives, then we know that he is our loving father and we can pray with confidence. John, John finishes off the section by summarising. He says, God's commanded us, trust Jesus, love each other. If you do that, really do it, not just with words but in action, then it's good evidence. You can be confident. Jesus is in you. You are remaining in him. You belong to him. Verse 23. This is his command. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. Okay, can you see what John's saying in this passage? He's commanding us to love each other. Uh, that means not murdering each other. It means not hating each other. It means following Jesus' example, laying down our lives for each other, seeking each other's good even at cost to ourselves, loving with a love that's not just, I say I love you, but, but love in action. John goes on to say, I'll still choose my words carefully, John goes on to say, if we do love like this, it functions as evidence. Evidence that we belong to God, evidence that we are in Jesus and he in us, evidence that means we can come to God with confidence. Is that what the passage is saying? I think it is, isn't it? All right. 
Well, let's think about applying the passage to ourselves. On your outline, you can see I've got three points of application. First, are we murdering or hating like Cain? Second, are we loving like Jesus? And then the third point is this, what I think is a really lovely point about our confidence before God. So point number one, are you murdering or hating like Cain? I hope you haven't murdered anyone. I hope you're not planning to start now. If you are, can I say you need to repent? You need to change your mind. It is not loving to murder people. Please don't do it. I suspect it's not all that likely a scenario here at Chatswood Prezi. If it is, like I'm serious, repent, don't do it. But perhaps a more likely scenario is that you're hating people. There could be a few reasons for this. Maybe, maybe somebody did something really big to you. Maybe uh, you were abused as a child. Maybe you were raped. Maybe you were ripped off. Maybe your parents ignored you. Maybe your dad left your family. Maybe someone broke your heart. Whatever it was, it has left you with a deep hate for someone, with a a gnawing bitterness about someone. Maybe that's someone here in this room. Friend, if that's you, I am not trying to minimise your pain. If that is you, I am not trying to excuse the person who hurt you. But somehow, somehow you've got to let it go. Somehow, you've got to get past it. I remember uh, a mate of mine was dealing with a lady who had been abused as a child and she was just so damaged by it. She was really eaten up with bitterness about it. Uh, With my friend's help, she confronted the man and uh, he was unrepentant. And so my friend took this lady to their minister and the minister said to her, you don't need to forgive the guy unless he's repented. All right, now I don't, I don't want to argue the theology here, but what I do know is this. Her bitterness just got worse and worse. It gradually ate her up more and more. Friend, whatever it was, you've got to be able to look to Jesus and go, he forgave me much more than I could ever have to forgive. You know, it's like you know Jesus' story about the guy who owed $10 million but then wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, someone owed him sort of $1,000 and he, wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't, wouldn't let them off the debt. We've got to be able to look to Jesus and go, he has really forgiven me so much. And somehow we've got to be able to let go of our hate and bitterness, whatever it was, because God commands us to love. Uh, maybe for you it wasn't a really big thing. Maybe for you, uh, it's more of a, a kind of an accumulation of little things. I think this is probably even more common among us. I see this happen in marriages a lot, and I, can, I would never, never think that it happens to me. <laughs> um, so um, uh, couples just get into arguments. Who's doing the housework? Who's not doing the housework? Who's spending the money? Who's not spending the money? How much sex to have? You know, there's this constant arguing and bickering, and gradually there's this build-up of resentment. Am I the only one who experiences this? This is, okay, even though I've got such a wonderful wife, there's gradually this build-up of resentment and you're in the shower or something and you just think, whenever you think about your spouse, you're thinking resentful thoughts about them. You're thinking angry, bitter thoughts about them. They won't do this. Yeah, I'm not the only one, am I? Okay. Friend, is there a fellow Christian that you hate? Is there a fellow Christian that you won't talk to? Is there a fellow Christian 
you feel bitter towards, angry at, uh, resentful towards. You've got to sort it out. You've got to sort it out. You know, we're going to come here today and share in the Lord's Supper where we will remind each other that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, that we stand before God on exactly the same basis, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. Can you set in your heart that you're going to sort it out with that person? Stop thinking about what they've done to you. What they've done to you doesn't force you to hate. It can't stop you from loving. Your love is in your control. We've got to rid our lives of hatred and bitterness and resentment. God commands us to love each other. But of course, love is more than hating, more than just, sorry, love is more than just not hating, isn't it? Okay, it's more than just not hating. And so that's our second point. Are you loving your fellow Christians? Are you seeking the good of other Christians, even if it costs you? Now, there are a million ways you can do it, aren't there? It's not that hard. Uh, In our local church, how do we love each other? We love each other by showing up regularly. Can't love people if you're never here. Um, we, uh, we love each other by serving in so many different ways and it's just fabulous. So every week I have to send out an email to about 50 different people who are serving on a Sunday. That's, that's fantastic. We love each other by encouraging each other to live God's way. We love each other by sharing hospitality, by helping each other when things are tough, offering lifts, cooking, babysitting, whatever it is. More broadly than just our local congregation and of course we live in a world where Christians are in profound need we can and we should be giving generously to support our brothers and sisters in Christ who are poor and suffering. As a church, we do that particularly on Good Friday and Christmas Day as we have special offerings that go to um, poor Christians particularly. Hopefully you're doing that in other ways as well. It's not just happening twice a year. Now, as John's shown us here, we've got to be careful because we can easily trick ourselves. It's possible to kid ourselves that we're loving other Christians. It's possible to just love with words or tongue, to to say we're loving, but actually there's nothing to show for it. We've got to be real about this. We've got to love in actions and in truth. Our love must come out in generous, sacrificial actions. Friend, is it doing that for you? Can you think of some time in the last day, week, where you put yourself out for another Christian? Can you point to tangible, loving actions? I hope you can. I hope you can. And if you can, then that brings us to our final point. If we can see love for Christians in our lives, if we can see genuine love, if we can see love in action, it actually should be a real comfort and help to us. It can help us in our confidence before God. Now, I don't want to unsay this, but I just don't want to fall into heresy either. Of course, our confidence must always be based on Jesus. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that takes our sin away. It's Jesus who brings us into God's presence. It's got nothing to do with our love, our goodness, in one sense. It's all about his love and his sacrifice for us. But if we can see love in our lives, it functions as evidence. As we see Jesus making a difference to our lives, it helps us to know that we are, in fact, his. Again, we're not going to do it perfectly. Of course we could love better than we are, but the question is this. Here's the question. Are you any different for being a Christian? Are you any different? Can you see anything different about your life because you're a Christian? Does being a Christian make you love other Christians in a way that you wouldn't do if you weren't a Christian? Do you get the question? Are you any different? 
I've got to say, I see heaps of, heaps of examples of Christian love in our church. I heap, see heaps of examples of how you are different. Oh, I want you to be encouraged by this and not distressed. It's possible you should be distressed, but I think most of us should be encouraged by it. Even oh, this week, I've seen people giving each other lifts. I've seen meal rosters. I've seen people sharing God's word with each other, praying for each other, challenging each other. That is great. Keep it up and know that if you are loving your fellow Christian, God says, chill out. Even if your heart's condemning you, you can know that you are mine. God says, and he knows better than you, God says, if you are loving my people, you can know you are mine. All your sin has been forgiven through the death of Jesus. You don't have to come to God like Oliver Twist. You can come to him as a loving father. Let's do that now. Our loving Father and God, we thank and praise you for your extraordinary mercy to us that you would give Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that you would raise him up so that he is now speaking to you in our defense. And we thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you have poured out your Holy Spirit on us so that we are trusting in Jesus as our King and Savior and so that we can see a difference in our lives. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for every evidence of love that is ours. Lord, please help us to be challenged by this passage. Help us to be fair income, not to trick ourselves, but to love not just with words, but in actions and in truth. But our Father, as we do, and perhaps we don't do this often enough, as we do look to our lives and see a difference, give us the comfort and strength and confidence that we are yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.